Thank you for your generosity, your support. So many of you uh, have given so generously, and I just want to encourage us all towards that as we follow after Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes. This is a book near the middle of the Bible. Psalms is right kind of in the middle, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And we are beginning a new series today in this book. I've got it mapped out quite a ways in advance, but I don't actually know how long uh, we're going to be here fully because I may have to slow it down for us. There's so much here, so much wisdom from this book from Solomon. And uh, actually, I will confess, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to say that I have a favorite book of the Bible. That's just something pastors aren't supposed to, I mean, you know, it's all the Bible, right? Um, I will say this, though. I have read the book of Ecclesiastes more than any other book in the Bible. I have returned to it over and over again. And I'm very excited. On the very first day as Ascension Church of Phoenix, our first service officially after our particularization, to spend some time thinking about this book that has meant so much to me and so many other people. Herman Melville, the author of uh, Moby Dick, said that the book of Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. And I think he's right. It's inspired so many people, so many artists, so many seekers. John Grisham, whether you think he's an artist or not, <laughs> right? A Time to Kill, considered by many to be one of his greatest works. Ernest Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises, Certainly, in my view, Ernest Hemingway's greatest work. References scattered throughout Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Thomas Wolfe, one of the great American novelists, said that this was, this book that we're going to spend the next few months looking at, was the most splendid piece of writing he'd ever encountered. Not just authors, there's bands. You too has said that the book of Ecclesiastes inspired Octung Baby, one of their greatest records. The Birds, for those of you who are old enough to remember them, not me, but to know about them. For everything, turn, turn, turn. It's Ecclesiastes. Dave Matthews Band. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Seekers, artists, authors, Many intellectuals have come to this book and found something inspiring and enticing about its words, but there's one group of people that sometimes have kind of a, a love-hate relationship with the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's actually Christians. Christians sometimes don't know what to do with this book from Solomon. Why? Well, I think for several reasons. One, it deals in the extremes of life. And so there are things here that, that push us towards the edge of things. There's a heavy philosophy approach and sometimes a heavy even pessimism, uh, a realism about life that is, that's really gritty and it's hard to, to swallow. And then on the other extreme, there's encouragement to dance and to 
enjoy life and to just be content and all these other extremes of happiness and joy. And we sometimes as Christians would prefer to kind of stay in the middle lane. We'd like it if, if we were kind of happy, but also kind of like realistic and to hear encouragement to be something, to, to go to the edge of things seems like that's kind of dangerous. Could be part of that. Also, the book of Ecclesiastes deals with uh, oftentimes the exceptions to the rules rather than the rules themselves. It's kind of the second part, so to speak, of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs gives us so much of wisdom, the rules of, of life and how to live. If you save up money, for instance, then you will become wealthy. You'll be set. That's a principle set into the world. But Ecclesiastes challenges that. It's kind of like, what's the exception to that? Well, you can lose everything at any moment. And so in a sense, the book of Proverbs is kind of like, uh, you know, if we were going to compare them to like the English, the rules of the English language, one of them that comes to mind is I before E. That's how you spell things, by the way. It's I before E. That's Proverbs. If you're wondering if the E or the I comes first, the I comes first. That's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes says what? Except after C. And sometimes Y. And sometimes for no reason at all. Like in the word neighbor. Which is not after C or Y, and yet it's still E before I. And that makes us wonder then, as we have wondered about the English language, what is the point then, <laughs> right? How, how, why are we learning the rules if there's so many exceptions? But the rules still work, they still, they're still great. And so wisdom from the perspective of the Scriptures is to say you've got to know the rules. You've got to know the Proverbs. You've got to understand how life works. But you also have to see the exceptions. The edges of things. You have to see what life is like realistically. And so for these reasons and probably many others, we've wondered if this is a, an okay book to read, to study, to quote As we come to it, my concern for us is that we would see this as God's holy word, that we would be shaped to it, that we would see its wisdom. And so I want to read for us the first 11 verses just as an introduction this morning and talk about it for a few minutes. Let's read these words of Solomon together. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, 
and what has been is what will be done. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's, already, it's been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Several years ago, I uh, was wanting to add a new software to my computer. And uh, I'd bought the software already, and I wanted to install it. And I realized that I had an outdated operating system. And it was actually outdated uh, a couple of times over. <laughs> I had not taken care to update it. And so I needed to update it. And then I needed to update it again before I could install uh, the new software. And so, before I did all that, I, of course, had to close out all the things that were running on my computer, which took longer than you think. Those of you who know me know that I have about 75 tabs open on my computer at all times, and that drives many of you who know me crazy. And um, that's okay. That's the way I do things. It's just everything is spread out everywhere, at least in that one space. And so, I began to close things out. I began to see that there was things running in the background that needed to be shut down. And it took a long time to get to the place where I was able to even shut the computer down to be able to install the new operating system, to be able to install the later operating system, to be able to install the software. I did all this work to shut it down. Then I installed the first software. It took forever. It didn't work the first time. Hours of buffering, of the circle of death, right? Uh, Watching this computer update. Finally, after half a day, I was able to get it the first time. Then I had to update something else on it again. So I updated it again. And it took hours. It was the next day, actually, before I was able to install this new software. And I come to the end of the process, and I realized that for a completely different reason, this software is incompatible with my computer. (laughs) The melancholy, (laughs) the depression, right, that sets in at that moment goes way beyond. I know you know what I'm talking about. It goes beyond the hours lost, doesn't it? When you have worked on something and you've believed in something so hard and then it turns out to be lost to you, it's more than just, I lost 12 hours on this. It's like, what is life? <laughs> you know, like, seriously, like, you're wondering, what is going on? Like, why can't I get anything done? And you start to, it, you just make it huge, right? There is a deep weariness to the world, to doing anything, to technology, to relationships. There is a weariness in all of life that goes beyond even seemingly the sum of the frustrations that accompany it. Weariness says, I've done all this work, I've given all this energy, I've focused on something, And in the end, what did it matter? And I'm starting to believe that it didn't matter very much at all. Perhaps not even a little bit. Ecclesiastes says in verse 8 of chapter 1, all things are full of weariness. 
You go to the end of anything, any effort, any perspective, you find that it can be a wearying thing. I know that we come in weary this morning. Even those of us who are in a pretty good mood this morning, all we have to do is start talking about a few things going on in the world and in our lives, and the weariness will settle in. Let's talk about politics. Let's not, actually. But isn't there a weariness? Four more years. Four more years. I don't care which president. It's just like, does, is anything changing? Yes, it is changing. We can't see it until the after effects decades later. This is what's going to matter. This thing, let's push this initiative. Let's elect this person. It just it doesn't seem to have ever the effect that we want it to have. There is a weariness from technology. Our search for joy and interesting things and our locking into screens and our watching of other people's lives on social media, it's exhausting. I know you know this feeling of looking at something and wondering what is the point. It's wearying. Success, advancement at work is wearying. To move to a slightly different place, to make slightly more money, to have slightly more happiness in the things that you're doing. Gosh, it's a lot of work. And in the end, aren't you still the same person? Ecclesiastes acknowledges that there is a weariness to our lives, a weariness to the world that is built in. What do we do about it? I want to ask that question this morning and answer it in a way that introduces us to this book this morning. The answer that it gives us is this. We address the weariness of life through honesty and faithfulness. We address the weariness of life through honesty and faithfulness. That is going to be the pattern that the preacher gives us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Honesty and faithfulness. Being true to what is. What is really happening? How am I observing this? How am I experiencing life? Let's name it. Let's not be afraid of it. On the other hand, let's not use it as an opportunity to abandon God. We're going to be faithful still, but we're going to be honest. And that is my goal for us as a church, that we would be honest and that we would also remain faithful I want to introduce us to three terms this morning that are going to be used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Three terms that are all in the first three verses and yet will be throughout the whole thing. And they help us understand this book and they help us to understand the weariness and how do we begin to address it. I'm going to give you the terms, and then I'm going to give you actually the Hebrew word for it because it's going to matter in a couple of the instances. And in many translations, maybe even the translation you're reading from, they leave some of these words sometimes, even in their original form, because they can be hard to translate. Here's the first term. The preacher. Koheleth. 
Koheleth. The preacher. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is the preacher? And why is he called the preacher? Well, traditionally, I've already said it a couple times, I believe this is Solomon who wrote this book. That is the traditional understanding of this book that's written by Solomon. Why? Because he's called the son of David and king in Jerusalem. There's only a handful of people whose descriptions fit that. And then you start looking at the book itself and you see that this is wisdom literature. And we know that that Solomon wrote wisdom literature. Also, you look at the experiences of the book. You, you look at the experience of great knowledge that's going to be talked about, the experience of writing books, the experience of sexuality, the experience of wealth and, and, um, and experiences. It could hardly be anyone else that we're talking about. And so I believe that the traditional answer is the best, though some people think that it's someone personifying Solomon. But I think we go with this is the preacher. That's Solomon. But why is he called the preacher here? What does that mean? The word koheleth means actually to collect or assemble. And it refers mostly to the assembly of God's people. In the New Testament, a similar word, a Greek word, is going to be used called ekklesia. The gathering of God's people, the church. And that's why this book is called Ecclesiastes. You may have wondered. The word Ecclesiastes doesn't show up in the book and it doesn't seem to refer to anything. It's actually a Greek word that is about the gathering of God's people. And so there is an imagined audience here like us this morning. We're gathered here listening to preaching. And so the, that is the context of this book. And so the, the Koheleth, the, the one who is gathered, he's the speaker to the people. He's the preacher. I like the ESV. They call it the preacher. I think that's what it is. He's speaking the words to the people of God. But there's a double meaning. Because as it means collect and gather, this is also the one who is collecting and gathering Proverbs. As it says at the end of the book, that this preacher gathered many sayings. He gathered and spent time and care pasting together this work for us that is seemingly at times disjointed and seemingly at times contradictory and seemingly at times hard to perceive, but when understood, you see what a work it is. You come to the perspective of Thomas Wolfe. This is the greatest piece of writing that's ever been written because it's so careful. It's so balanced and so beautiful. And so... The preacher, the collector, speaks to the collected and he also speaks the collected wisdom. Solomon stitches together, as a can- stitches together for us a canvas of wisdom that we need. What is his game? What is his persona? What is Solomon about when he gives us this preacher? There's two broad understandings of the book of Ecclesiastes and what the perspective is. From one perspective, I believe the incorrect one, they say that Solomon is acting like an unbeliever. That Solomon has either lost his faith 
or he is pretending like he has in order to be a foil to the truth. I hope you can follow me here. He's saying things that aren't true so that we can see what is true. That's one perspective on the book of Ecclesiastes. Those rough edges, that wisdom that we don't really like to swallow sometimes and we don't really want to spend time understanding these intense things that he says. Well, maybe he's just acting like something isn't true. So Solomon has either lost his belief or he's pretending to. This perspective is old. One of the rabbis of the Mishnah, collected uh, sayings of the rabbis in Jewish literature, says this about it. O Solomon, where is your wisdom? Not only do your words contradict the words of your father David, they even contradict themselves. As I've said, I don't take this understanding of the preacher. I do not think that Solomon is either losing his faith nor is he pretending to. I think he is, I think he is teaching us true wisdom. And we have to have the patience to walk with him in it and see what he is seeing and the, take the perspective of this book. In short that lens through which we're seeing things, I see him as being honest and faithful. In fact, I think to be faithful, we need to be honest. And the kind of wisdom that Solomon has, this seeker wisdom, is important for us to ask those questions, to seek out the truth, and ask unafraid some of these things that come up in our minds, like what is the point And why would I labor? And why should I be with one person? And why is money seemingly at times the answer to everything and seemingly at times the answer to nothing? See, Solomon is a seeker, but he is also a preacher. Honest, faithful. His honesty will lead us back to the truth to seeing God as the key to everything in our lives. It will not leave us adrift. The preacher, Koheleth. The second term is the philosophy. The word that comes up throughout the book, Hebel. Hebel. That is found in verse 2. Vanity, A vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I don't actually prefer the term vanity there as a translation. The the word is hebel, which means vapor. It's a breath. Also, it's sometimes translated futility. It is the shortness of things. That's what it is, literally, the breath, a vapor that vanishes after a second. It's a puff of smoke that rises from a fire, or the steam of a hot breath on a cold morning. It's just there and it's gone. The emphasis is on the shortness. Hebel. Now again, I include the word there because it matters biblically for us to understand where this this philosophy, this word is going to be used 35 times throughout this book. Vapor. You see the word there, it looks very similar to another word that you might have seen before, actually a name. Abel, 
of Cain and Abel. The first two brothers born, the word Hebel is the same word, same root as Abel. Abel, you'll remember, it was the first murder in the Bible. His life was a breath. His life was short. And the word could have come to mean that after his death. Perhaps he was called Abel, not when he was born. Maybe he was born with a different name. And then later called Abel, or it could have been the case that his name was Abel, and the word then developed to mean a shortness. Either one is fine. But here, by this time in Solomon's life, it's come to mean short breath. And here we see it in the superlative. Hebel of Hebels. That's how you make something big as you repeat the word five times in verse 2. Like the holy of holies. We sometimes say is the most holy place. Well, Hebel of Hebels is just the short breath of short breaths. And his point is to say that no part of human existence is free from this kind of futile thinking. Viewed from one angle, we're going to talk about that in a moment, Everything is a treadmill of futility. There is a weariness, as we've already said, in going to any extent in any area. To prove his point, he then spends the next ten verses or so talking about five different areas where we see this shortness, this vapor. Let's look at them briefly. He says, first, it shows up in work. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All of our sandcastles that we build, so to speak, are washed away by a rising tide. What's the point? We're going to talk more about work later. He says in the area of work, in the area of time. Verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever each generation seems like it's it's so important this is the generation we say this is the time we believe that but then when you just zoom out a little bit you see that every generation is just one little dash in a series of dashes on a timeline what could be the point not just in the area of work and in time but in nature itself verses 5 through 7 gives us three images that tell us this repetition, this this Hebel perspective even in nature. The sun rises, verse 5, and the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. This is even in nature, the repetition of things, the weariness of things. And here he's not saying that nature itself is the wearying thing. He's saying our understanding, our ability to affect it. He's saying, look, our lives, we exist in a place where the sun does what the sun does, and the wind does what the wind does, and the sea does what the sea does, and it makes no difference what we do to affect those systems. That's what he's saying. They do their thing without us. 
So what is the point of us doing things? We just exist in this place that has cycles. In the area of work, time, nature, fourth, he says, sensory experiences. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been already in the ages before us. What we see, what we hear, what we experience, what we discover, what we anticipate will bring joy. It's all been done before. There's no newness. Say, ah, but there are new things, Solomon. We, we didn't have airplanes before. We, you, don't, you don't know what an airplane is. That's new. We didn't have computers before. That's, that's new. Solomon would say, what are you trying to do with an airplane? What are you trying to do with a computer? Well, we're trying to travel. We're trying to communicate. We're trying to calculate. It's all the same things. It's, it's only new in the way that it's happening. And one could argue whether it's better or not. It's not necessarily better that we have advancements. It's a breath. Our understanding of even sensory experience. Even, fifthly, in history itself. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We've seen this movie before. The cycle of history, the repetition of the same rises and falls, the geopolitical exhaustion. How are we to understand first the philosophy of the preacher when he says that everything is hebel, short, and possibly futile. I would say it's honest and it's also faithful. Faithful because this is a thoroughly biblical understanding of life. The psalmist says in Psalm 39 that our days are a mere breath. Psalm 78, our days will vanish like a breath. James in the New Testament says that life is like a mist that vanishes. It's gone. To be faithful is to see that this life is not where the treasure is. It's short. It's, it has to be understood that way. That's faithful, but it's also honest. To look at life and to experience its brevity and its cycles is something that the wise do. It doesn't mean, though, in his honesty here, and I want to be very clear about this, that he is saying that everything is meaningless, as some have translated that word hebel. I don't think that's good. He's not talking about the meaninglessness of life. First, it's not a good translation, but secondly... Solomon is the wisest person who's ever lived, and he himself would have caught his own error if he had said that everything is meaningless. Because why would somebody say that everything is meaningless 
if they believe that statement is meaningful for you to hear. If everything is meaningless, then there is no reason to tell you that. There is no reason for him to collect all this wisdom, to spend years possibly putting together this book. Why would he say that there is no gain, no gain for our toil, and that be the only perspective if he has worked hard to give us this book? He is not saying that there is no truth. There is no meaning. That's not what he is saying. He's saying, looked at from this perspective, there is a sense of brevity and a loss of control that we need to see. What he is saying is this, submit to what is. Submit to what is. You must give up the driver's seat. You are not in control of the world any more than you are in control of the sun rising or the water table working. This is not your impact. Viewed from this perspective, life is short. A short cycle of drudgery, dissatisfaction, punctuated by amazing joys. That's honest. But it's also faithful. Because that is what this life is. But you've got to see the third term to understand where the book is going. We have the, the preacher, we have the philosophy, but we also have the perspective. And this is all important. The perspective is Tahat Hashemesh, under the sun. Verse 3, what does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? The phrase is going to come up 30 times in the book. What does he mean under the sun? What he means is viewed merely from a human understanding. From a human perspective. When we limit our gaze as we must do for wisdom's sake. But as we limit our gaze to this creation alone, there is only futility. It's wisdom to take on this perspective. But it's crippling if we only have this perspective. This under the sun is not the only perspective. It's where we live. It's where we work. It's where we play. It's where we understand our lives. But it's not all of everything. It's not the ultimate perspective. There is another perspective. It's under heaven. Meaning under the watchful eye of God. Under His perspective. His watchful care. And that's where He's going to take us. We're going to have to be patient to get there, but that's where He's going to take us. He's going to show us that the end of all things is to entrust yourself to Him. But in order for us to see and know and enjoy God properly as our Lord, we have to see the emptiness of life without Him. We have to become disillusioned with the way the world is. That without Him, there is no gain. That's the expected answer to the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Expected answer, nothing. There's nothing under the sun that we will gain. 
And so the open question is, well, can we have some other kind of gain? And to answer that question, we have to go to someone who is wiser than Solomon. And yes, there is someone who is wiser than Solomon, greater than Solomon. He himself said it in Matthew chapter 12. He says the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon. That's how amazing his wisdom extended. But something greater than Solomon is here. This is Jesus Christ. And by the way, the same title of this book applies to him. He is the preacher of the church, the son of David and the king in Jerusalem. I mentioned Herman Melville's Quote that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books, but right before he says that, Melville says, The truest man is the man of sorrows, and the truest book is the book of Ecclesiastes. See, Melville saw Christ as the true source of wisdom, and then this preacher, the second greatest, wisest person collected for us life under the sun, but we have in Christ a view from heaven. And Jesus said something very similar, asked a very similar question, what can we gain? Not in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The greater Solomon, the one who is greater than Solomon, says you cannot work your way into a meaningful existence. You cannot gain enough under the sun. You actually can't gain anything to have life, you must lose something. You must lay down your life. Lay down your self-importance. Lay down your good works. Lay down your ability to control things. Lay down the things that people say about you that give you that comfort that I'm doing alright. Lay down your accomplishments. And cease from working under the sun for gain. What you need is Christ. Himself. And it's a call to all of us, whether you have trusted in Christ this morning or you haven't, to cease from your striving under the sun and live under heaven. That's where we're going with this book. It's hard to capture all of it here this morning. That's why we're going to have to be patient. Wisdom is going to trickle out over time as we are shaped by this book, if we could just summarize what it is, then we would essentially rob it. One of my favorite stories about uh, T.S. Eliot, some of you have heard me say this before, the great poet, he's reading The Wasteland, the poem that he is most known for, and he was at a public reading of The Wasteland, and he read the poem, and there was a Q&A section afterwards, and somebody raised their hand in the back, and they said, Sir, can you tell us what the poem means? He took a second and looked at him, and then he started reading the poem again. 
It means what it means. The definition of poetry is the economy of words to communicate something to us. And you can't say something about a poem without reducing what the poem is. You cannot say, this is what Ecclesiastes is about. You have to be shaped by it. You have to enter in to all of the ups and downs of it. You have to see life the way that Solomon sees it in order to arrive at the conclusions where he arrives. This is going to be a journey for us. Be dwelt on, shaped by. But I will say this as we close this morning. There are two big traps that it teaches us to avoid related to what we've been saying. First is to live without, with a lack of honesty. And second is to live with a lack of faithfulness. A lack of honesty. We are challenged by this book that we must wrestle with the big questions of life. We must. If you have lived mostly on the surface, originally I was going to challenge just the young people in the room who haven't experienced very much life. And I do think that's a challenge for many of us who are growing up seeing that life is hard and there's death and there's money and, there, and there's all kinds of things that we have to think through. But I think it actually is applying to all of us because even those of us who have experience or some experience of life can avoid the hard questions. It's something that we want to talk about, but we're not going to talk about it today or next week. What is it that I'm working towards? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? What gain is there? To ask those honest questions. If you live on the surface, then you are not prepared for the futility of a life that awaits for you under the sun. can't stay superficial. You also can't compartmentalize your life. Solomon will not allow us to do that. He can't say, well, now is the time of my career. I'll worry about my marriage, and I'll worry about my kids, and I'll worry about the significance of life later. can't do that. You can't stay on that kind of surface level of this is what life is about for me. You have to see the wisdom of life is not just in the compartments, it's in the whole. And Solomon's going to mix that up for us. He's going to make us say, okay, why am I not asking the hard questions about my spouse and about what I'm doing with my life or whatever it may be? You can't avoid death. You can't say that it's going to happen later and therefore I'll think about it later. He's not going to allow us to do that. And so we can fall into the trap of a lack of honesty, whether it's because we haven't had the experience or because we're suppressing the experience. We must engage. To be under the sun means certain things, and we have to engage with them. A lack of honesty. But second, my second worry for us is that there will be a lack of faithfulness. Maybe you are someone who's asking the big questions. Maybe you are someone who's wrestled with it, what is the meaning of life and what am I doing here and what do I gain? But you keep avoiding the answers. 
Ecclesiastes teaches us that futility can be your experience, but it cannot be your answer. There is no way to escape the questions, but if we never come to an answer, then we are also not living in wisdom. This is where Solomon is going at the end of all things, just to preview for one second, is to fear God and do what He commands. You must stay faithful. Questions are good. Jesus can take your honesty but you must acknowledge Him for your life. He is the only one who gives this invitation to the weary. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The only one who offers us that invitation. Solomon himself, in stirring up these questions, cannot give us that rest No other system can give us that rest. No other person says, I am the answer. Christ is unique in saying, I am the answer. Come to me. Don't come to my ideas. Don't just come to my book. Come to me, and I will give you rest for all your weariness. And I love that it doesn't specify in that verse what the nature of that weariness is. Because it can be multifaceted, can't it? Come to me those who are politically weary. Come to me, those who are relationally weary, who don't know how to fix your marriage or how to bridge the gap between yourself and your parents or whatever it may be. Come to me, those who are philosophically weary, those who have tried to search for the truth and you still don't have answers. There is a weariness in everything, but there is an answer to the weariness. It's Christ. God can handle your honesty, but you must acknowledge Him in the end. Fear Him and obey Him. Then you will be wise, honest, and faithful. That's our goal. And it leads us to Christ every time. Let's pray. Father, I know that there is a mass of struggles, fears, questions, experiences, despondencies, and melancholy, and all kinds of things in this room, including in myself. There is a weariness, Father. We acknowledge that weariness this morning, and we ask that you would help us to come Christ, as we come to the table, that we would be fed by Him to know He is able to receive us as we are and yet to transform us, to receive our honest wrestlings and yet to make us sure of Himself. So we ask that You would do that. Draw us to Yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.